Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Casino Royale. Already? I thought we had a lot more movies to go before we got to Daniel Craig. Yeah, who said this was 25 podcasts long? We're there, guys. Two more in Skyfall. It's not even out for three more months. Starring David Niven, Peter Sellers, Ursula Andress, Orson Welles, Woody Allen, and directed by Ken Hughes, John Huston, Joseph McGrath, Robert Parrish, and Val Guest. Don't forget about Richard Talmadge. There's six directors. This is the first time I think, Brock, the director's list you've read is longer than the cast list you read. (laughs) And this is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. This is Stuart in L.A. This is Arnie from Casino Royale, and I did not come here to be devoured by symbols of monarchy. I don't know what that means. Yeah. (laughs) Am I the only one who watched the right Casino Royale? kind of spitting, though. We don't know what it means. Kind of like goes off in its own direction, much like this movie. We are here discussing the 1967 version of Casino Royale because we are a glutton for punishment, folks. Because we have this thing here at Now Playing that we must be all-inclusive. This is a James Bond title, just not an official Eon James Bond title at this time. Which does beg the question, what makes a movie official? I mean, because we've had several different James Bonds. There are some that are official. There are two that are not that we're going to be covering. So what's the difference, Brock? The difference is the producing partners of Harold Saltzman and Albert R. Cubby Broccoli formed Eon Productions, which, contrary to popular belief, does not mean everything or nothing. In 1961, Saltzman had the rights to the books. So after the experience with Thunderball, these producers talked to Charles Feldman, who owns the rights to Casino Royale, and as part of the deal Saltzman cut with Fleming to get the rights to the books, Casino Royale was not part of that deal. And Casino Royale was already made into a television program in 1954. This was fun when I found this out. I did not know this until I started doing some little Bond research. But yes, 1954, live television. It is not a movie. We aren't going to cover it. It's only an hour long. But it does exist. There is a original James Bond before Sean Connery. And he's American. Yeah, his name is Barry Nelson and... The guy who played Le Chiffre in that is Peter Lorre, who many of us know from other movies like Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and many, many others. And it's a one-hour teleplay that is not the same thing as a Daniel Craig movie. Let's just say it that way. 
but it is pretty close to the book. I've got to say for condensing it down to one hour and limiting it to what you could do on one sound stage, I was surprised at how much it reminded me of the Ian Fleming work. I did already cover that one over at Books and Nachos. They kept the gist of it. I mean, they changed the female character a bit. They made things a little bit more neat. And of course, they made Bond an American and his sidekick, the Brit. But for the most part, it's a closer Casino Royale than what we're going to get. <laughs> and the best thing about it for me was I learned how to play Baccarat. That's true. <laughs> I kind of felt like we reviewed 21, that movie, years ago over here at Now Playing, and we learned all this stuff about counting cards and blackjack. Well, this time I know how to play Baccarat. So if anyone wants to know how to play Baccarat, check this out. It's actually on YouTube in addition to being on the DVD I got for Casino Royale 1967 as a special feature. And I will just go ahead and add, it's a mild recommend for super hard Bond fans. If you like the book or you like the Daniel Craig movie, it doesn't hurt to watch it. It goes down pretty quickly. It's not particularly good, but it is amusing. You know, Stuart, I had trouble watching that one, and I am a Bond fan. My curiosity was piqued, but you know how you watch an episode of The Twilight Zone now, and if the plot is good and the story is good... Then you'll go along with it, and you'll give it the concessions needed because it's a 1950s production. If it captures your attention, this one I felt was struggling from the beginning, and it could very well be because of the characterization of James Bond being so different than what I'm expecting, but I had a little more trouble watching it than you apparently did. I would give it a mild not recommend, but if you're curious, of course, we told you how to find it, make your own conclusion and let us know what you think on the forums. But because they made that TV movie, and because Casino Royale was the first book, it wasn't included in the big lump of books that got sold to Eon. Right, and what's important to remember is, they just came off Thunderball, and so Feldman decided he'll make it on his own, because at this point, 1967, the spy craze was huge, the Bond craze was huge, he'd be crazy not to try to capitalize on it, and he decides to go the spoof route, so people wouldn't compare the two James Bonds. Not a bad way to go. I mean, there were already spy spoofs of James Bond out there. James Coburn had one that was in, like, Flint. There was a little series there. Peter Sellers' Pink Panther. Get Smart was on TV. Hell, even Batman, in some degree, was a spoof of spies and gadgets and all this. The Adam West thing. Conceptually, spoofing Casino Royale, if you can't make it an official release, it's not a bad idea. I agree completely. It's much better than trying to go head-to-head. We're going to see that, I guess, when we get to the early 80s anyway. And at this point, after the last few movies, it feels ripe. I mean, it worked so well for Scary Movie with Scream, and that's kind of what I'd equate this to 40 years earlier. But it should also be pointed out, James Bond itself was kind of self-referential comedy. I mean, I don't think that they weren't in on the joke. It's kind of hard to parody something that's already one foot in comedy anyway. You mentioned Scary Movie. I haven't seen any of those for precisely that reason. I think Scream is funny enough alone. I don't need someone to point out how silly Scream is. Ah, but what they did with Scary Movie is what they do here. If it's already a little self-referential, let's go slapstick. Yeah, go big. And hey, you know, again, not a bad choice when you look at this cast list. I mean, my God, they got some people I really love here to do this spoof version. I'm not disagreeing with you there. You got some really high-priced talent. You got some really great, popular comedians of the time. Plus, you got Orson Welles on top of that. You also got some veterans of the Bond series, which is also helpful. They cast it right. 
But then Peter Sellers had different ideas. From what I can gather, Sellers actually wanted to play this more straight. This happens inevitably with any great comedian, as they want to be taken seriously. And I think that he actually had a conception of playing this character closer to Connery. And I'm sorry, cast Peter Sellers if you want to go madcap, slapstick. I mean, look at Strangelove. The guy can do it. But sexy, womanizing spy guy, Peter Sellers is not. But that is what he wanted to do with this project. And I guess it eventually led to creative loggerheads. He walked off the set and they were left with an incomplete movie. And then they had to come up with the rest of it. It's almost like when somebody dies and they have to complete the movie with a double or something like that. They had to create an entirely different plot. It was either scrap it or make it a feature. And so six directors and nine writers later, we get this. Arnie, you want to try and summarize this? James Bond is a legend in MI6, but is now an old man living out his retirement. But when Smirsh starts killing MI6 agents, MI6 leader M and other world spy leaders implore Bond to go on one last job. When Bond refuses, M blows up the old spy's house, but himself dies in the process, and so Bond was made head of MI6. To save agents' lives from assassination, he demands every agent is renamed James Bond 007, and an investigation into the Smirsh activity is launched involving several wacky sexcapades. To investigate Smirsh agent Lashif, Bacharach player Evelyn Tremble is recruited to be another James Bond. He does beat Lashif in cards, and Lashif is killed for his debt to Smirsh. Then Smirsh agents use a flying saucer <laughs> to kidnap Matabond, James Bond's daughter, so James and Moneypenny travel to Casino Royale to rescue her. There, they meet the head of Smirsh, Dr. Noah, who happens to really be Jimmy Bond, James Bond's nebbish nephew, who's jealous of his uncle's swagger and stature. A huge slapstick fight breaks out with the Americans coming to the rescue as well as the French and some others. And eventually, Jimmy blows up, victim of his own atomic pill, taking Casino Royale with him, killing everyone. I wish that included me. <laughs> Bravo, sir. Bravo for actually finding a way to summarize that. Well done. I want to point out one thing that might also be a factor in why we get what we get. You mentioned, Stuart, and I mentioned earlier that there were many directors on this. The original plan was to have four different directors do a segment each, then bring it all together for a movie. So while we talked about Sellers walking off and not completing his portion of it, another problem was when they actually found what they got from the different people, it didn't fit. It didn't work. Even though they're trying to go for a psychedelic movie, as the actual term the producer used, it didn't work completely. And that's in addition to the Peter Sellers thing. They had to come in and reshoot scenes and find a framing device to try to make everything fit together better. Fortunately, it's the 1960s and people are taking LSD. <laughs> This was a hit. Was I supposed to take a hit before I watched this? If that was a prerequisite for the <laughs> review, I would have liked to have known. Yes, I think it might help. I honestly think what we're digging up here is a real time capsule that almost doesn't even make sense in any other decade. At no other time would they make a movie this disjointed and, yeah, as you say, psychedelic. But this was actually popular at the time. You know, I almost attribute to the influence of foreign films, Fellini. I mean, people used to go see foreign movies because they brought sex into it. They were the first films where people saw, you know, boobs and it was more titillating. Stuart, don't you think... 
think, though, the popularity of Bond and the spy craze at the time contributed to the United States revenues? No doubt that people didn't know what they were getting. Bond was coming. You Only Live Twice, the real movie, was coming six weeks later. Maybe they got confused. Maybe they thought that this was the same thing. They are riding on the heels of Goldfinger and Thunderball, big hits. Yeah, because that's what I see when I see the revenues. It was a big, big hit. But as far as I can remember, this is like the redheaded stepchild of the series. It's become that, yes. I feel like at the time, everyone thought this must have been so hilarious. But now, well, where to begin? I mean, at the heart of this, I want to point out, as someone that's read and reviewed the book, it's here. Deep, 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 deep down in here, there is Ian Fleming's novel. They really are trying to make it. And I realize that that's the one book I've read. I read it many years ago, but I remember it well. And yeah, it is in here. There's also a lot of things in here that aren't in the book, but it is in here. (laughs) Yes. I mean, the stuff with Peter Sellers and Orson Welles at the casino, which doesn't even come into play until 90 minutes into this movie. All that stuff is relatively faithful to the page. It's also the best stuff in the movie. I kind of wish that this movie had gotten made because, like I said, I love Sellers and I love Welles. I love their scenes. Well, I won't say together, but I like the scenes that they're both edited together together in i probably would go with a spoof that had these guys as the star i'm right there with you that's my favorite part of the movie and i'm glad you said that and i think that sellers was playing it straighter as you said earlier and i think it helped enhance the comedy of it because he does not look like james bond and it's kind of funny that he's playing that he does it kind of works the two of them together what you're mentioning these two actors did not get along at all there's something about the queen mother visits the set of the movie and peter sellers is going to put on all these airs because he has met her before but she was uninterested in that and wanted to meet orson welles and peter sellers got offended and felt that he was just shot down and was dissed, essentially, to use uh, an outdated term. And therefore, him and Wells started a feud. Also, Wells thought that Sellers was an amateur, was beneath him, and should not be working with an actor of his caliber. So they both had this dislike for each other. So in the scene they're in together, in Casino Royale, you will notice there's only one shot of the two of them together. The rest of it, it's either Le Chief or Bond. And from the waist up, at the table. And if you know this before watching the scene, it's amazing that it's so obvious that they're not acting against each other. Like Wesley Snipes in Blade 3. Okay. Yeah. I did not realize that. I didn't know this story until you guys just said it, and I had no clue they were not on set together. Yeah, the details there might be a little foggy, but that's the gist of it, and that's really all you need to know, because Sellers was a big diva on the set in other ways as well. Yeah, I think that that's true, and ultimately this movie didn't get made in completion this way because of the way he walked. But just concentrating on this part, you know, I think that Sellers is giving a performance that is reminiscent of, I'll go ahead and say it, Mike Myers, Austin Powers. I feel like Mike Myers is channeling what Peter Sellers is doing in those Austin Powers movies. He is kind of spoofing Bond, because this isn't James Bond. This is some Baccarat expert that wrote a book that is being recruited to play James Bond to win at the tables. They're remaking Casino Royale, but they know that they don't have Connery, so they've kind of framed it like, well, we know we have the imposter, but go with us anyway. And Peter Sellers is good with playing imposters. Again, I like all these choices. I like this cast. In the scenes where he's being recruited, I'm laughing. 
I can't say I'm laughing, honestly. I had a weird vibe during these scenes. It may be the strongest, most coherent portion of the film from the time that Peter Sellers is seduced to the time that he goes to Casino Royale to play his Bacharach. But I wasn't really that impressed with Sellers here. My eyes were all on Wells. Wells commanded the screen. You know, I've seen him in some great things, but the only thing we've reviewed him on and now playing was Transformers. <laughs> Is this a step up? It certainly is in performance. Yes. Here we're seeing him in his prime when he was commanding. You know, it's easy to remember him as a parody, but he's phenomenal here. He is really commanding. I would love to see him as a real Bond villain, you know? When I saw that they had cast him as the bad guy, I'm like, that's perfect. It does make you wish they had played this more straight. I mean, because he's got that gravitas. He's over the top and funny. Can you be hammy and toned down at the same time? That's kind of how I feel like he's doing. It's a big performance, and yet it's not so big that it takes over the screen. There's still something contained and brooding in his eyes as well. Maybe it's because the guy is literally so large. He he doesn't move around. He kind of just sits at the table. I noticed that, too. Yeah. He had to make things move around him. He didn't move himself. Yeah, but he's got stage presence to spare, and I love Orson in general, and yeah, I love him here. I agree. I also thought that another person probably couldn't have pulled off those magic tricks in this movie. Even though this movie is wacky and madcap, I had no problem with this guy doing the levitating trick in the middle of the casino for no reason. It was fun to watch because the man made me watch him. When he was doing the magic tricks, I got to admit, sometimes I get confused and think I was watching Dom DeLuise. <laughs> Captain Chaos. I gotta say, though, Stuart, that the Peter Seller scenes, I did laugh out loud during the dress-up scene mm-hmm. when he was changing into different world people. And I liked the part when he made the joke about the poison pen letter and the Q branch guys were like, yeah, we've heard that a thousand times. Because that, to me, is a good spoof. You know, Bond's little quips and on Q how he reacts to them. And this one was just a bad joke. That played really well and pretty straight. I didn't see Austin Powers. Maybe I'm thinking big Austin Powers and the mojo and the loud suits and stuff. I think something's a bigger character. I think he was playing it a little more down to earth, but maybe they're coming from the same source because here I really felt that Sellers was playing it so straight that for me it was completely working as a spoof when Sellers was playing the character of James Bond. Yeah, let me rephrase. Yes, Austin Powers is obviously a much bigger, broader attack on the sex magnetism of James Bond. The joke in those movies is he's kind of hideous, and yet women still fawn over him. And here, this guy is a nerd, and he's being played by the women to do what the agency needs him to do. It's a different instinct. I guess what I'm saying is that Sellers and Myers kind of look the same to me. They physically resemble each other. So we're seeing the super slick spy mode, but in a more unassuming guy but you're right it's a different kind of performance yeah there are just moments that caught me by surprise that remind me of seller's genius you know like he's seduced by vesper lind and she says evelyn that's a girl's name and he's like no that's my name he could have done this if they had somehow appeased him on set i could probably go the rest of the movie and all the wackiness that they want to have on the side would just seem peripheral that the movie that i'd want to see would be here and would be larger in scope but this is like i said coming 90 minutes late and scattered peppered throughout a much more labyrinthian nonsensical plot it's not enough of this for me i wish that they had found something and stuck with it because during this whole segment i got to admit I'm missing David Niven. 
Sir James Bond, the James Bond that we've seen the rest of the movie. He disappears for a half an hour. Really, it did feel almost like an anthology more than a coherent movie. Did they bring in Niven after Sellers walked, or was it always the idea that there would be David Niven, the real James Bond, and Peter Sellers, the imposter? Your instinct is correct. They brought him back in to fill in the blanks, and him and Vesper were supposed to be the links to all these disparate segments. Right. So it's more like a framing device and more of a through line. It didn't really work for me. I got the impression the beginning scene the John Houston portion, was already filmed. They brought him back in, I think, for the ending. So he would have played a role, but he might have been a side joke, and Sellers was the star. And as Sellers stopped coming to the set, Niven kept getting asked back to shoot more and more stuff. I can't say 100% yes, but that's the impression I got from the little behind-the-scenes stories we're getting. Only one guy seems to be really talking here on the behind-the-scenes stuff on the disc. It matches exactly what Wikipedia has and the other stuff on the internet, too. So we're getting one or two versions of what actually did happen. Right. It's just everyone's dead, so <laughs> we don't really know. They may not remember either. Obviously, everyone's drunk or high. <laughs> There's some meta jokes here. I don't know if they're funny, but David Niven could have been the official Bond. So the fact that they've cast him as this real Bond that's gone into retirement and is actually nothing like Connery is kind of a joke unto itself. I actually read that Ian Fleming had pictured David Niven in his mind as the guy, as James Bond. When he wrote the novels? Yeah, and he sent a copy of Casino Royale to David Niven to read mm. because he was, in Ian Fleming's mind, the guy for the role. Because I always think of David Niven from Pink Panther and these kind of comedic roles. I don't know David Niven as a serious actor. Yeah, his career as a big star, matinee idol in the 40s, but he was beloved. Sure, I guess I can see someone that has come out of World War II thinking that's the guy that should be my Bond, but as a kid that grew up with Connery and Moore, Niven makes no sense. He only kind of works here as a parody to what Connery was doing because he's the opposite. I mean, Connery's all about smirking and getting the girls almost without doing anything, you know, a snap of the finger. Niven is pushing them away and teetotaling and completely against the ethics of, you know, Connery Bond. Which I found amusing. I really tried to figure out how they were doing that because they have it where he used to have these kind of sexual escapades and now he's known for his chastity. That he has this rep that he's living down? I guess he does because he has an illegitimate daughter with Matahari, the spy. Right. So he had, once upon a time, the raging sex life of Sean Connery, but now these Scottish spies try to entrap him by impugning his honor by trying to seduce him in scenes that, I don't know, I didn't find him funny. Yeah, I agree. The Scottish castle scene dragged. When they got him there, it was confusing to me because... They blew up his own chateau. The whole scene in the beginning with the four guys coming to get him out of retirement. Yes. I thought that was okay. I was going with it. I was actually going with that. And then when the place blows up and they had a lame toupee joke. Yeah, M is dead. How'd he die? Oh, yeah, okay. I'm not the only one who didn't realize he died. No, no. Yeah, it's confusing. So when he goes to his castle in Scotland, they don't tell you that. And then his daughters are replaced by Smirsh agents. They explain it in dialogue, but you really have to remember that. It's not entirely clear. And so right off the bat, they're confusing you and you have no idea what's really going on. Yeah, I was following it, but I was like, so they're all spies? Because they said bring in this one spy who has the best Scottish accent, so when I realized they were all spies, it kind of caught me off guard. 
Yes, everyone is a spy. Bond, meaning Niven, thinks that he's dropping off the toupee of M to the widow. Of course, it's a heirloom. Yeah, uh, but it's uh, it's two hours of that, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Not this podcast, that movie. It's women that are trying to coerce him through sexual wiles to come out of retirement, right? Everyone wants Bond back. And that includes the Russians, you know, like everyone, the good guys and the bad guys. Everyone wants him to come back because him being there means less people die. Spies on both sides, I guess. I think that's the joke they're telling. I'm not entirely sure. But I did note that at the beginning, he got England, America, France, and Russia all begging Bond to come out of retirement. And now, yeah, you have these who knows who female spies impersonating M's widow and daughters to try and seduce him even further. Let me tell you, though, these scenes... While I was a little bit fuzzy on the story until they were over, I could honestly relate to them. I didn't find them funny. I didn't find them engrossing. But I found them familiar because back in the 80s, I'm a teenager. I'm watching really low-budget titty flicks on Skinamax. This is the type of plot setup. If there had been full frontal, this would have been right there with some of the weird stuff I used to watch on Skinamax with a guy running around in a donkey head and all kinds of strange things. You know what I was thinking of? And it's not dissimilar from this, but I'm pulling it one step back from porn. Benny Hill. Like that kind of crazy lewd behavior where the action is sped up and everything's so goofy. And when the jokes aren't working, somebody must pull off the bra. I definitely got the sense that they would do anything for a laugh, including some really hoary behavior here. And yes, they're definitely not above pushing the TNA. These scenes are terrible. They should be cut. This movie is way too long, and this is where I would start snipping. But I think they were prone to keep this because, one, they have a big star here. It's Deborah Kerr from From Here to Eternity playing the M. Widow, but also because, come on, it's TNA. It's boobs. You're right. It does have a sexy kind of vibe, and that's the only thing that's going to sell this movie because it sure as hell ain't funny. I'm happy to say I've never seen Benny Hill, so that's why I couldn't make that relation. Really? Yeah, I have avoided Benny Hill my whole life. I know the tropes. Never seen a full anything. Wow, I thought you were going to say I'd never seen From Here to Eternity. I'm like, yeah, all right, I believe that because it's kind of an older movie. But when you said Benny Hill, I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) It was always on before Doctor Who. I saw it many, many times. I was very confused. I've watched my fair share of Benny Hill and From Here to Eternity. And Deborah Carr, I've only seen her do dramatic stuff. I've never seen her do comedy and there might be a reason. She was very big in this, and good for her for sticking with it. She didn't waver. She did that same thing in every scene she was in. She actually had a character that she was portraying. I didn't care for it, but she made a choice, and she stuck with it. I didn't mind her. Of all of it, I found her the most consistently amusing on screen. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, it's because she just seemed so committed and she had such a through line that when she's pulling back, what is that? Is jockstrap to fire a metallic button? Yeah. I was going with it because of her performance even more so than Niven's. It just seemed like a bunch of bad Scottish jokes. And again, I'm thinking of Mike Myers here. He does love a good haggis joke. And if it's not Scottish, it's crap. But in that scene, for example, when they had the button with the magnet, whatever, He's shooting the ducks and they explode, right? Because they're bullet ducks. Enemy agents of unknown origin have decided to attack him while he is consoling this widow. Yeah. Right. They're out shooting ducks in the field. Right. Bond is shooting these ducks. And so when the first one blows up, Bond doesn't get tipped off. He keeps shooting ducks, three, four, five, six more. 
that keep blowing up. And this is where I got traces of the Pink Panther. This isn't Bond as Bond in a parody around him. This is Bond as oblivious oaf. Oh, I'm shooting ducks. Oh, they're exploding. Okay, I'll shoot another duck. Exactly my point. I think that's a mistake, though, because you already have one patsy here. You already have one guy who's playing Bond and isn't equipped for the job. You already have the Pink Panther, as it were. You have Peter Sellers already doing that in this movie. I think you need to draw a stronger contrast between what Niven's doing and Sellers does. Maybe that was the plan. Yeah, maybe, but did Nivens not see any of the footage? No. <laughs> oh. Remember, each segment was separate, so they had no idea what they were doing. Wow. When all these directors get together and say, let's make a film together, it'll be a party, it is a good time for them. It is a miserable time for the audience. I mean, I'm looking at you, Four Rooms. That was the first one that came to mind. Yeah, but Four Rooms had a through line of the bellboy, right? Whatever. It wasn't really like the Twilight Zone, the movie, and California Suite, that kind of another anthology movie, right, Neil Simon? Yeah. They don't have much to do with anything with the other segments. They're completely separate. This one here, they tried to make it a coherent movie. Epic fail. If they made four different episodes completely separate from each other, if they could have done that, if Seller stayed with it, etc., 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 it might have actually worked a little better. The through line, I think, is actually hurting the movie also. Yeah, the problem is, it doesn't feel like four different adventures in one. It doesn't feel like four stories, one movie. It feels like one movie struggling to find a story. I almost wish that, since everybody gets named James Bond, if each segment had starred a different James Bond... That would have been so much better because as it is, I'm getting narrative whiplash because I'm thinking David Niven is the star and it will be David Niven's 007 adventures. And so when he's off in Scotland for so long, I didn't get that that was an episode of an anthology. I thought, my God, is this plot dragging? But it's a comedy. You know, it's trying to make its jokes. It's not trying to push a narrative. But then when we get to the Peter Sellers stuff, I'm like, where's Niven? Niven is three of the four stories. So it's really confusing in that way. I love your idea, Arnie, honestly. And that's what I would say is why, if they were conceiving it this way, why would you try to integrate it with the way that they have? Yes, if the joke is that everyone wants James Bond in action and everyone is being rechristened as James Bond, almost every person that appears on screen at some point is called James Bond. Yeah, Let's run with that joke. One of them is David Niven. One of them is Peter Sellers. One of them is Woody Allen. One of them is Orson Welles. Please make one of them Orson Welles. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a stretch even he can't do. But yeah, I like that idea. I think that's funny. And that's a through line that would give it a coherence that it certainly does not have. Because you're right. We spend so much time with Niven when they finally switch back to the Sellers stuff. It is whiplash. It is confusing. And just when I'm settling into that, well, then they go off to Matabond. Niven has had a illegitimate daughter, and she gets her own adventure here as well. And a dancing. <laughs> the dancing out of nowhere, of course. Isn't everything in this movie out of nowhere? That's the point of the humor. Well, Matahari is her mother, and she was a stripper slash spy, so it's somewhat appropriate. And I actually kind of like this bit. I mean, she ends up going to Germany and trying to enroll in a dancing and espionage school. And they have funny one-liners about Peter Lorre and Bella Lugosi being graduates of the program. Again, it's not that any one part of this is awful, although that Scottish stuff is close. (laughs) I'm not able to orient to understand the humor in time. By the time I understand where I'm at, they've pulled me in another direction. 
I did like the set direction with the yeah. awkward doors and the sideways slanted staircases. I like that a lot. I like the action scene when she escapes, when she actually does some great fight choreography, when she slides down the banister and she swings from the chandelier and all the falling going on. I thought that was brilliantly fun, comedic, entertaining action sequence. Yeah. It was a comedic action sequence, which was great. As compared to all those sad... <laughs> <laughs> she does have a sexiness that none of the other bonds do and i think this movie you know needs and plays off of that it's fun to see her try to get the spy film and you know this stuff feels real madcap in a way that feels familiar this feels to me like mel brooks or something like that there is actual thought going on to that choreographed scene yeah you can see there's artistry in what they were doing in that kind of fight scene. So yes, I found it to be entertaining because I could acknowledge the fact that there's finally somebody here with a head on their shoulders trying to create entertaining and coherent scene. I also thought the people that she was fighting, you know, there's this Scarface instructor and her, like, assistant or whatever. He's got, like, a battery-powered heart. They kind of remind me of the bad guys from, from Russia with Love. I was thinking about Kleb and Kronstein. They kind of looked like them. I don't know. That was fun. I wish they had dared to play more off of what had been done in real Bond movies. If this is a parody, make fun of Goldfinger. Make fun of From Russia with Love. Go there. The only one we get is Dr. No, and that's a bad joke. Dr. Noah? I mean, boo. Well, keep in mind, they had the rights to Casino Royale, so they couldn't bring in those other things. As it is, there had to be lawyers on set, I'm sure, about everything. Can we even have a Dr. Noah, or is that too much into a book we don't have? Now, parody law being what it is, perhaps they would have been completely safe. The way this movie is made, I would think you wouldn't even need Casino Royale rights to make this movie, because it would all be protected under parody law the way the scary movies are. But because of what they had rights to, I could see why they wouldn't draw more directly from actual James Bond films. They might have been fear of litigation, but it can be done, and we have seen it, certainly in modern cinema. There's whole movies that are nothing but skits stripped together that poke fun of movies. You say scary movie or epic movie. Anything with movie at the end of the title, you can do those bits. But I did get Rosa Klebb, not off the guy with the computer as much as you did. I got the lesbian partner of his, the woman who ran the school. I got more Rosa Klebb off of her. Yeah, the other guy would be Kronstein. Right. Did you notice Kronstein was actually in the movie? He's the guy who's the auctioneer of the photographs. We also get Ursula Andress back, you know, the original Bond girl, the babe that comes out of the ocean and wants nothing more to sell seashells to Florida. She's here as Vesper. Is that her real voice in this movie? I think it might be really her voice this time. Because she's a better actress than the voiceover from... Dr. No. I actually really enjoyed her performance here. She actually had five years to learn English, Arnie. Yeah, that was the problem. She couldn't have done it in 1962, but now that it's 1967, she's gotten the coaches. I do think that she's actually one of the funnier women here. You know, there's a lot of femme fatales that come in and out, and they kind of play off the various bonds and are usually trying to ensnare them in a bad plot. A lot of the times, there's too many of them. Too many women, not cohesive plots. But that's where I like. And maybe it's partly because she is from the book. And partly because Ursula has the postmodern quality of having already been a Bond girl. I didn't care for her. Come on, when she's got the headdress on and she went for it, I felt like she was having more fun doing the comedy than some of the other ones. Okay. I just didn't care for her all that much. I thought she looked gorgeous. I thought she did the part she was asked to do with Sellers, especially the whole look of love thing. That worked fine. Her performance to me was flat. 
she is not a comedian. She's saying these lines with her heavy, thick accents, so her lines that may have been joke lines didn't play to me. And I didn't buy the turn of the character because I didn't get that from the rest of the movie. I didn't buy there's a through line for this character that she was portraying. So later in the movie, when the whole turn happens, I don't buy it. I never, ever want to do Police Academy with you, Brock. You're sitting here (laughs) looking at a comedy. There's a through line for a character. Now, I know I've said this kind of crap on many other movies, but none of them are intended to be slapstick comedy where through line for a character, no, does it make you laugh at the moment? 30 seconds from now, you're on another kernel of popcorn. (laughs) My only comparative is Batman 66, and that is how to do this kind of humor well. I'm missing that movie. It came out the year prior to this Casino Royale. I think it tells the same jokes much better. My feeling is that comedy is so of the time. More than anything else, comedy is based on a society's norms and mores. And I equated this to softcore porn earlier, but I bet if I was watching this in the 60s, this might be softcore porn. And nowadays that we're in this new society where everybody just kind of wears virtually nothing anyway, you've got to go harder. And this had no effect on me. But in the 60s, maybe this is where people went to get their rocks off in a tame fashion. Not maybe, definitely. Like I said, if this made any money at all, it was for that reason. It's because they want to be able to take their kids and enjoy something else. And, you know, Julie Andrews and Sound of Music just ain't doing it for them. (laughs) Yes, you wouldn't have the quote-unquote shame of going into a porno, but still experiencing it for salacious reasons. That's a big factor here. Absolutely. And because of the time difference, I just don't get that. So I think a lot of the comedy, the Benny Hill stuff that you mentioned, would have played for me. I mean, right now, this to us is like the 40-year-old virgin, or there's something about Mary with the semen in the hair, where 40 years from now, people will be like, semen in the hair, oh my god, that was supposed to be funny, I have it in my hair now. Yes and no, but I do think that some comedies are timeless, and I think some comedies are time capsules, and this falls in the latter category. I don't think that anyone would laugh at this movie very much if they hadn't lived through the 60s. I'd agree. I mean, I do watch comedies before this. I'm actually a huge fan of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, but I suppose I mean specifically edgy, racy humor becomes less edgy as time goes on. Well, this movie is certainly a time capsule of the 60s. Based on everything we saw in this movie with the music, with the choices of sets and all that kind of stuff, absolutely. In the scenes with Peter Sellers, when he's doing a complete character, Arnie, he is actually going against Ursula Andrews for the majority of his scenes. And that is why I'm saying all of this about the through-line stuff. Because in those scenes, that is the part of the movie that actually has a semblance of a real movie. And that's why I didn't buy it. But yes, you are correct. When you're a comedy, these things happen because of the comedy. But here in these scenes, it's not the same kind of comedy it was as the Scotland stuff. Whole different tone, whole different movie. So I'm sticking by what I'm saying about Ursula Andrews here. She didn't captivate me the way she captivated you two. Question for you guys. Is this in any way a Bond movie? I mean, at this point, we've already watched four other ones. And there's a formula that's brewing here. Does this play off of it anyway? I mean, again, I ask, if this is parody, they must be familiar with the conventions and playing off of it. I mean, there are the goofy gadgets. There is a Q guy that has gadgets. But were any of those more outlandish than what had already been done in Goldfinger or Thunderball? I don't think that the gadgets were more outlandish. I think the way they were used was the way, you know, the guy has the bowler that he's trying to fire and it backfires and things like that. It's the same type of gadgets. I don't know that you could go more outlandish, especially with the budget and technology of the time. It's just a matter of 
putting wacky people in those circumstances. We said in our first podcast, the books had Smirsh as the villain, and they didn't want to go there, so they created Spectre. But Smirsh and Spectre, Dr. Noah is the Blofeld. It is definitely taking from those first four Bond films in ways that, had we not just watched them, I wouldn't have seen as clear. By the way, I'm just going to put it out there. I think that James Bond official Eon releases are funnier and better parodies themselves than this movie trying to poke fun at them. The only way that I feel like this movie is exceeding what had been done in those is the music. I got to say, I did not know The Look of Love was on the soundtrack, but Burt Bacharach. Can I get a shout out for Burt or a shout down? I love Burt. I love this soundtrack. I want to own this soundtrack more than any of the Bond films we've seen. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I totally groove on this soundtrack. I love the look of love, the Dusty Springfield. This isn't a cover. This wasn't a popular song that they brought into this movie. It was Oscar nominated for this movie. It's a great song. It's up there with some of the best Bond songs. I really thought that it was just a popular song brought into this movie. I had no idea it was written for this. I do have that song on my iPod. My favorite movie is Bush Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And if you know the movie, you know Burt Bacharach did the music for that. Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. Is the single, which is also, I believe, Oscar nominated, but lost to Midnight Cowboy. There's a scene in this movie with the milk truck, with the gadgets and all that, that very much reminded me of the steamship sequence montage in Butch Cash and Sundance Kid, obviously the same composer. And so it was really kind of fun for me to actually hear the similarities of the music. I have had the theme song from Casino Royale in my head this entire week. I have not been able to get it out, and it's, as I'm walking down the street, I'm doing it's so catchy. It's so much fun. I'm completely there with you both. I think the music in this really adds something to it. And I think that that music still is existing to this day because I'm watching this with Marjorie, and Marjorie's a big Saturday Night Live fan. She hears the music. She, like, livens up and starts going on about how this was used in a Will Ferrell skit pretty recently in SNL. So they're still pulling this music out, Burt Bacharach's score for modern times. It's the best thing about this movie, and it's really, really good. I also want to give a shout-out. Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass are actually playing the score, and I love A Taste of Honey. I played that record just as much as Goldfinger when I was a kid. It's a great combo. Do you guys feel the music came in a little big at times, though? Even though it's a lot of fun, like David Niven running around with Money Penny, and it came in really strong and really big, and I thought that was a weird choice for the movie, even in this one, to have the music come in so strong. Did it ever bother you at all that it came in so strong? Or were you just happy to hear it again over and over? I would rather have heard that music than seen anything that I saw accompanying it. <laughs> it never bothered me, but it did get stuck in my head for a day or so after because it was played so much. But no, never bothered me. As this thing slogged towards the end, it really was the only thing that sort of peppered the mood. More importantly, it's the only thing that made me know I was really watching the same movie. Yeah. Because at times, I really wondered if it had switched to a different movie with James Bond-named characters. It was the music that kept the through line, if you will. Mm-hmm. The bright spot for me is, I'm a Woody Allen fan, and he plays a big part here at the climax. I knew nothing about this movie going in, except I thought this was entirely a Woody Allen film. I told you guys before that in high school, I tried to get into James Bond. Well, how do you find out in the late 80s where all the James Bond films are? There's no internet. There's no IMDb. 
There's no DVD that I can look up on Amazon. I had to go and buy a Roger Ebert book to find all the James Bond movies and get my list. So the ones that I missed, I may just have overlooked in this Roger Ebert, Leonard Maltin, I had both, compilation. Well, one of them that I never saw was this Casino Royale where it's just talked about Woody Allen playing Jimmy Bond. So in my mind, for like 20 years, I've thought, this is a Woody Allen film along the lines of like Play It Again, Sam, where the whole thing is Woody Allen as Jimmy Bond. That was what I thought it was coming into. So when we get the one scene early on of Jimmy Bond and the firing squad, first of all, highlight scene, my favorite scene of the movie until the end, I'm like, that's it? The whole thing in the little Leonard Maltin Ebert synopsis was Woody Allen is Jimmy Bond, and that's it? A cameo? That's all I'm getting? But it is such a great scene. I mean, he's at a firing squad. He jumps the wall only to land on the other side, and they're doing another firing squad. It's classic early Woody Allen. I'm thrown back right to Bananas, Take the Money and Run, Sleeper, all those early funny ones. I haven't seen all of those, but I'm also a big Woody Allen fan, probably to the shock of a lot of our listeners. A shock to me. I can't believe you like Woody Allen. That's wonderful. I love his comedies more than his dramas. I like Annie Hall. I was so happy to see him here, and this is such a throwback to those early times and such a great performance. It was the truly funny moment out of everything. There were two times I laughed. Woody Allen and the Firing Squad, and the very opening scene where the guy says he did not come to be eaten by symbols of monarchy. Those were my two laugh-out-loud moments this whole movie. And I was just so pissed that that was the end of it. And then he comes back at the end. He's Dr. Noah. And I was happy to see him again. Right. They stop with the Sellers thing entirely. It's literally kind of dropped. He goes to rescue Vesper that's been, you know, taken and cut. They don't even have the footage. They have a brief scene of torture and then he's shot. They have to drop all that and bring in Niven to close the movie. Niven's daughter, Matahari, has been kidnapped by Dr. Noah. And so he goes to get Moneypenny Jr. I don't even know if her real name is Moneypenny. She's the daughter of the Moneypenny that he knew. And so they go chase the UFO back to Casino Royale. I was happy to see Woody Allen back. I really had a brief moment of joy. I realized we were nearing the end of the film. But here, you know, again, I didn't really care for any of the quote-unquote comedy thus far. I really like him as this nebbish Blofeld. I think it works so much better than even Mike Myers' later spoofs of Dr. Evil, which is a more on-the-nose parody, but I like here that you're going against type, and it's an inferiority complex of his uncle that's causing his evil, and he's doing all these plots, and he's got the gases that will kill all men over four foot six and leave alive only short men and beautiful women. I love his plot. I love that he can't speak around his uncle. I'm really enjoying this last bit with him, for the most part. Yes, it shouldn't be oversold, but Woody Allen is doing a Woody Allen bit, and it's just what we needed here to sort of resurrect this thing. The problem for me is that Niven isn't Connery. I mean, this would make more sense if Allen was the cousin of someone, I guess, that I thought was debonair. I guess we're supposed to think that Niven is debonair. To me, he just looks old. And the fact that he's, you know, drinking milk and not being Connery, it isn't playing right to me. Yeah, it doesn't play very well at all. They had this guy earlier in the movie who's a very debonair guy that I think would have worked better if Cooper was there at the end against the nebbish Woody Allen. Everything you guys are saying is dead on about casting Woody Allen there. 
and having this scene with this reveal of Blofeld. Because at this time, Blofeld was not revealed yet to the mass audiences. He was just the guy stroking the cat with the hand, right? So it was kind of fun they played off that. You're talking about spoofs of the early James Bond movies. I love how they played this one out. And of course, in the comedy, you got to reveal it. And who else better to be there in this situation anyway than Woody Allen? And it breaks into that great, gigantic, Blazing Saddles-type all-out battle in the casino. Yeah, I also thought Blazing Saddles, and I didn't know if I thought it just because of the Cowboys and the Indians, <laughs> or if I thought it because of just how over-the-top it was. I was really calling myself out, like, why am I thinking Blazing Saddles? But I thought that, and I checked out completely. Keystone Cops are coming, Indians are burning a pyramid and doing a whoa-whoa-whoa-whoa dance, and I'm like, oh my god. This is not funny to me. It was climax enough for me to know that Woody Allen had been tricked into eating an atomic bomb. It was a pill he (laughs) developed that's actually going to turn him nuclear, and he's walking around hiccuping his own death countdown. That's a funny countdown. We don't need all this other zaniness. And you got to keep in mind, some of these people are famous at the time. They're walking on. They're doing bits. The audience members would react. At the time, they would have more of a connection here. I don't know if they'd find it funnier. Again, it depends on how many tokes you've had or what you've taken. But the stuff that's happening here would have meant more to the people watching it at the time. Now, it just looks like noisy chaos and detracts from the good joke, which is Woody Allen and the Atomic Pill. Which I liked, except for the cartoon of the hiccups. That eh. When I read that, Stuart, what you did about the guy flipping the coin with somebody I didn't heard of before and things like that, everything you just said about the in-jokes at the time, I instantly thought of Austin Powers, the last Austin Powers movie when they had the Osbournes in there for a quick joke, and how that's just not going to play if I watch that movie now. Aladdin, even, some of those jokes are from very much the early 90s, and so we were kind of thinking the same things. I had no idea who those guys were, and I frankly never heard of them. But I did appreciate the madcapness that they were going for, but it didn't work for me like it did at the Marihari sequence earlier. Here, it seemed desperate. It seemed over the top when it went Keystone Cops, as Arnie said. It also seems familiar of the time. Like I said, there was a lot of madcap movies. A lot of the Rat Pack movies kind of end like this. I don't know if people ever go back. I know they love Frankie and Dean and all of those guys. But if you ever try to go back to watch their movies... They're sloppy and loud and dumb and in kind of in the shambling way. It was acceptable convention at the time. Now it just looks like your grandparents' idea of wacky. (laughs) So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Casino Royale? Stuart? This is not a Bond movie. I had never seen this before. I'd always had curiosity about it, partly because I'm a Woody Allen fan, partly because I'm a Bond fan. I wanted to know what it was, and I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to read the book to even be able to put this into context. What I got here is a movie that's more interesting to look at the making of than actually experience it watching it scene to scene. It is a gigantic mess. It is a failure, maybe an interesting failure, but most decisively a stinky bomb. It's terrible. I can only recommend it in the sense that if you are a Bond fan and you want to be curious, there are trace elements of the Bond Casino Royale story for you here to explore. There are very good comedic actors that get a joke in here or two. But I'd much rather have reviewed the next movie in the series, You Only Live Twice. I mean, this is You Only Watch Once. So, not recommend. Arnie. I'm not the Bond fan here, so I wouldn't go seeking out James Bond spoofs. My question coming into this is, is it entertaining? Is it funny? And I've gone through how I don't feel a lot of the jokes aged very well. 
this could have been funny to me if I was 50 years older than I am and the world's oldest podcaster. (laughs) But no, it's not funny, except for those Woody Allen scenes. And I've got to say, the Woody Allen scenes and the Orson Welles scenes were both so captivating to me that I thought about recommending it for those alone. I really did. I thought about saying this movie as a whole is a shambles, but I recommend you go see it just to see those performances. But no, I don't. Go watch them in better movies, not recommend. Yeah, watch it on YouTube, those scenes then, man. (laughs) There's other ways to do it than making an audience sit through that. I have seen this movie twice now. I watched it back in the 90s when I bought all the James Bond movies. I had come down to the end, and I had left just a few and never say never again in this one, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to buy Casino Royale, because it's, you know, it's a James Bond film, sort of. And I sat there and watched it, and I sold this videotape so fast, you couldn't even believe that it was out of the wrapper. I, I could have returned it and have been like, I don't care, give me half the money, I hate this movie. I could not stand it back then, I watched it the one time. The only thing I remembered about the entire movie was that Woody Allen was the guy in the chair at the end of the movie. And this time watching it, I was pleasantly surprised that I liked the music. I actually loved that my favorite gag in the whole movie was the Woody Allen firing squad. I liked the ending, and I liked the Peter Sellers stuff. So in the middle there, I was like, okay, yeah, I totally forgot about this. This actually plays. But the rest of it for me was sure torture, and I do not recommend this movie. In fact, I think you're all better off not seeing it. Your curiosity is one thing, but this is not worth your time. It really doesn't play. And if you do really want to watch the good scenes, the Peter Seller scenes and the Woody Allen stuff, I would suggest YouTubing it because I'm pretty sure you can find the bits on YouTube. I'm pretty sure I haven't checked myself, but let us know. Go to our forums that you can find a link to it on our homepage. You can let us know that way. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. and You can join the conversation with us there and let us know what you think. Yeah, there's no way that anyone could endorse this whole movie. I'd say start at the end, and if you're laughing, maybe continue back through the movie. It gets progressively better, like the climax, then watch the stuff with Sellers, and then if you really are a glutton for punishment and everything else. There you go. Well, let's get back to the real movies then. Yes, we are now back on track. Let's get back to the Eon official James Bond and our next podcast. Now playing will return with You Only Live Twice. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies.
Support from listeners like you help keep now playing operating. M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond retrospective series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. And we learned all this stuff about counting cards and backgammon. Backgammon, listen to me. Yeah, we learned about checkers and chess and blackjack. Arnie, you want to try and summarize this? Will you hum Burt Bacharach in the background while I do? <laughs> I will. <laughs> James Bond is a legend in MI6. The sum, what's the what's that term? The uh, the sum of its parts, the whole, whatever the thing, whatever the freaking expression. The whole is. is less than the sum of its parts. There you go. And wow. just for the record, I'm not sure if you care about this, but he didn't play the Pink Panther. He played Inspector Clouseau. Uh, Peter Sellers did. He's in all the Pink Panther movies. I understand he's not playing. He was character. not the actual Pink Panther. He yeah. did not try to sell you insulation during football <laughs> games in the 80s. No aardvarks were started talking to you. Yes. yes. Okay, so. Wow. That is a mistake. I mean, I'm all about anthologies and. Dr- actually, I'm not. I cannot <laughs> actually think. That's I, I, I'm going to take a stand here. I'm going to take a stand because I've seen many of them. This is a comedy, damn it! Say something funny! Anyway, they were the first films where people saw, you know, boobs and it was more titillating. Was that pun intended? Uh, kind of. <laughs> <laughs>